Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is a very special edition of Hot Sauce Interviews. Uh, joining me, of course, is Terry Tam, as always. How's it going, Terry? It's good. I think we should change it to, like, Not Sauce for Interviews. Not Sauce for Well, the show itself is Not Sauce for Work. Yeah. Uh, joining us this week on the interview is uh, David Sampson. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, David and, and why he's here in a moment. But yeah, we uh, we uh, just so David knows, uh, we initially started a podcast called Hot Sauce Sports. It's now a uh, podcast network called Hot Sauce Sports, and our show has now uh, been relabeled as Not Sauce for Work. Um, so that is who we are uh, as a network. Um, we are, as I explained to David before we went on air, we're not uh, a podcast network that specifically covers Montreal sports, uh, but we are proud Montrealers. And so when the opportunity arises to speak to someone about something we're passionate about, uh, in this case, uh, David's time with the Montreal Expos, for those who do not know, Montreal used to have a baseball team called the Montreal Expos. And the reason we used to have that team is, well, one of the reasons is the vice president who joins us today, uh, David Sampson. Uh, and that's the bulk of the reason why we want to talk to you today, David. Uh, the the situation is actually quite complex, and we're going to get into all of that, uh, all those details um, as, as we, we move forward. But firstly, I want to thank you, first of all, for joining us. And um, David, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's good to see you guys, and I love your hat. I still Thanks. proudly have all my Expos hats from my two years in Montreal. I miss the city, even during the winter. There's nothing colder than leaving Olympic Stadium in the middle of winter when it gets dark, like at 3 p.m., and we used to park right outside the offices, but you had to go to your car, and I learned this from native Montrealers, turn the car on, go back, do yeah. a meet, and then get back in the car. I yeah, remember exactly. It's fondly. So I like I'm I'm the type of guy like I'll start my car like three or four times with my with my starter on my fo- on my on my key just because I don't want to get into a cold car. So like I've been lived I've lived here for 34 years and I'm still not used to it. So I can only imagine. I uh, I personally just have Eagle send the car already warm. So I don't know why <laughs> why this is an issue for you guys. Montreal's never been cold for me. Um, uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, you know I want to talk a little bit obviously about uh, our own experience with the Expos real quick. Um, I was a huge Expos fan. I still consider myself to be an Expos fan. Uh, David, I don't know if you can see this right here. Uh, this ball is a ball from my birth year, 1982. Um, the, uh, my parents went to spring training, got the ball signed uh, by you know, some of the greats like uh, Chad Wallach, uh, Gary Carter. Uh, I, I laughed with Terry. Pete Rose's signature is on there back before you can pay for it. Um, <laughs> So that was, uh, that's something, it's been sort of a prized possession of mine since my birth, essentially. And um, my dad was a huge fan. I used to skip school to go to games. I used to go to school uh, not far from the stadium. I threw Henry bars on the field when, uh, when Henry Rodriguez hit a home run. And my grandfather, actually, uh, while criticizing constantly the building of the Olympic Stadium, was uh, a construction worker who worked on the, the, the Olympic Stadium as well. So we... Uh, in our family, we had a huge, uh, proud history of uh, being Expos fans and critics of the uh, awful stadium, which only Montrealers are allowed to criticize. Uh, Terry, do you want to tell us a little bit about your your experience as an Expos fan? So I'm, I'm, 
my experience, my experience, David, is, is very basic. When I've been to a few games, I'm like, we always had seats in right field. So we would always uh, make fun of Bobby Abreu. For some reason, we always ended up going when the Phillies were in town. So we always make fun of Bobby Abreu and, and Bobby. We'd just rip on him all game, throw Henry bars. It was great. My uncle had season tickets, so we, we would get some on the first baseline. And walking into that relic of the Olympic Stadium was always fun. You know, it was always fun because when you're a kid, you don't really know what other ballparks look like, right? So you, th- you assume that that's, that's the ballpark that, like, it's a major league ballpark. This is what they all look like, right? You assume. And, uh, and then growing up, realizing that place was uh, the absolute dump. And it was hard to keep that team in the city with, I mean, you, you, you'll you tell us about the struggles, but it was it was rough to see them leave. Uh, my brother was fortunate enough to be at the last game. Uh, I, I forgot why I couldn't go that day. And it was just, it, it, was, uh, it was, I have fond memories of the Expos, but I also have uh, have hurtful memories as well. I'd like to respond because I appreciate hearing your stories and uh, remembering your first game, family, all the great things about baseball and and how it impacts everyone. I want to be very clear to you both that I took very seriously not just my job, but also the ramifications of the job I was doing and the ripple effect that it has. I understand when you trade players or when you have a losing team. I understood when the Expos were not going to survive in Montreal, the impact it would have on generations of people. And I also knew that it would cost a lot more to get a team back than it would to keep a team. And I knew that Montreal would want to get a team back. And that's proven in every city when they lose a team, they spend more money to get it back. And I loved Montreal. Through all the ups and downs, I was honored to be a part of the organization. And, uh, you know, I'll answer any questions, talk about anything, explain. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about something with emotion, it's really hard to be rational or to hear rational business points. And baseball, if nothing else, is really an emotional sport. Absolutely. I mean, the first question I want to I want to ask you is: I mentioned the stadium, and it was. I mean, we hear about Lavad Park, and we hear um, about the deals that fell through. And wh- take us through take us through the breakdown and what happened there, and why we couldn't get the the uh, why we lost the naming rights, why we. Um, why there could there wasn't any funding? I know you you went to get public funding, but at that point the public was so turned off by the Montreal Expos. Take us through the rundown of what you did in order to 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 get a stadium in place. Because from what I the way I see it and the way peas peas and and thousands and thousands of Montreal Expos fans is that the ownership of you and your former uh, step uh, stepfather, I believe it was, he yeah. you guys you guys did anything and nothing to keep the stadium here. So if you want to change the perception, I think it would be good for you to do that. Well, I think you have to give context to what the year that we started. So we came in in 1999, December 9th of 99 was the first press conference. And remember the fighting that was going on between the old owner, his name was Claude Brochu and his limited partners who were the Titans of the Montreal business community, both uh, French and English. You're talking about people like Jean Coutu and Pierre Michaud and Stephen Bronfman and and Desjardins, uh, the investment bank where Jacques Menard was from. Anyway, on and on. Major League Baseball was looking for anybody to buy the Expos from Claude Brochu because Claude Brochu was in such a fight with his limited partners. And one of the people was Charles Bronfman. Charles Bronfman started the Expos. He's the big time owner who then gave it up to Claude Brochu, but then his son wanted to get involved, Stephen Bronfman. So Mm -hmm. Charles called Bud Seligan said, we want Stephen Bronfman to be involved in Expo's ownership, but he doesn't want to run the team. You need to go find a general partner to run it. So Bud Seligan spent a year looking around Montreal, 
Claude Brochu spent time, anybody to put in 18 million Canadian dollars, anybody. They didn't want a New Yorker named Jeffrey Loria. They wanted local Montreal ownership. And this many people stepped up to put in the 18 million to buy a Claude Brochu. So reluctantly, Bud Selig calls up Jeffrey and says, I know you've been trying to buy a team. You can look at the Expos if you'd like, but you, you got a problem there. They have a stadium deal that we don't know if the budget is real. We don't know whether or not there's enough financing. We don't know whether or not the TV deal can stand on its own two feet. You have no radio deal and you have a very small ticket base because of what happened in 94. And that's when the strike came and Montreal was in first place long before I was just out of law school when this happened. <laughs> so that was what's going on when we entered. There was no one else, literally nobody else. So we entered the first job we had with Major League Baseball was to figure out whether or not the stadium that was being proposed could be built for the budget that was given to us by Claude Brochu. We bought in, brought in a, a firm called HOK. They're the preeminent builders of stadiums. That's, that's all they do. We went around to other baseball cities and studied their stadiums, looked at their budgets, looked at everything. Then we went through in Montreal, line by line, the budget for Labatt Park. And what we found with the approval of Major League Baseball and the limited partners in Canada, that the budget for the ballpark was understated, that they couldn't get a ballpark done for the amount of money that they said they could. Everyone acknowledged it. So then we started to figure out how do we get more money? We tried to get public money, it didn't work. We tried to get more sponsorship money. And the deal that Club Rochu cut with Labatt was a horrific sponsorship deal for naming rights and not competitive at all. So we went back to Labatt and said, you gotta do more. And they wouldn't. We then went to RDS, Réseau uh, de Sports. And we tried to get more in rights fees because there was no TV deal. We went to CKC <laughs> to try to get more radio money. Basically, my job was to try to save the Titanic. That's really what I was trying to do. To and flip I, it. And I failed. The bottom line is I failed. But we inherited issues. We certainly didn't make them better. But we so, didn't find a way to make them There's, a few, things, there's a few things on the front end um, that I do want to acknowledge that I don't consider to be your fault at all. Claude Brochu is not a, a friend to the Montreal community at all. We, we, we understood, even at the time, that the Expos were amongst some of the richest owners in baseball who just didn't invest in the organization. Uh, the 1994 season was uh, marked, of course, by the strike, but then the team was instantly torn apart and it wouldn't actually have even cost them much to keep the team together. Larry Walker even said he would have taken less money and the team never even contacted him uh, during the free agency period. So you know, Barbara Shue was paid to make money, just so you're aware of what his contract was with those Canadian limited partners. If the team lost money, he made much less money for himself versus if the team were profitable, he got bonuses, just so we're aware of that. But but that's the thing, and and Montreal being sort of a mid-market and being a uh, a team where, being a city where the, the, the team of note was not from that sport, most teams, David, and you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but most teams in that situation don't sort of make money day in, day out. It's a, sort of a long-term investment, and the, the teams will only become profitable when selling the organization. I love where your head's at, and this is a great segue to why the Expos ended up 
being sold and moved. The limited partners in Canada had an opportunity to do exactly what you're talking about. Put money into the team to sign players, to keep a moderate payroll at like 85% of the industry average. Jeffrey Loria, as the owner of the, as the general partner of the Expos, a small owner of the Expos, but the general partner of this partnership with the Canadian um, business titans. He said to them, we need money because we're losing money year over year. We were in touch with our Canadian partners about everything we were doing with TV, with radio, with the ballpark, with Labatt, because we were a partnership. We told them everything that was happening. And we said, we need to raise money because the team's going to lose money. He did what's called a capital call, which is what you do in a partnership. And not one Canadian partner put a dollar in, not one. So Jeffrey had to fund every loss. And when you fund losses in a partnership, the partners who don't get diluted. Therefore, those partners got diluted. Jeffrey's ownership stake increased, and that gave him the power to decide what to do with that partnership. So the way the way I see it is that all everything that was done and everything you just mentioned all tells me I'm building a house, fixing it up a little bit, just enough to make a profit so I can flip it. So flip it back to the league or flip it back to the next owner or whoever it is so we can F off and go to, well, in this case, it would have been Florida. That's the way I see it. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's not the case, though, right? We didn't even dream of a franchise swap. Where We didn't know John Henry wanted to sell the, the yeah. Florida Marlins. We knew that the Florida Marlins had a stadium issue just like the Expos did. We didn't know that the Red Sox were going to be sold. And we didn't. And by the way, John Henry wanted to buy the California Angels, not the Red Sox. A little mm-hmm. known fact there. So we didn't know any of that was going to happen during the 2001-2002 time period. So we went into it saying this is... This is a lifelong dream for Jeffrey. We got to make it work. It was close to New York where he lives. Very easy back and forth pre 9-11 where you could just zip up and zip back on Air Canada every 45 minutes and get to the airport five minutes before. Go to Dorval and everything's quick, obviously before 9-11. So absolutely our intention. Why wouldn't you want to make it work? Because you're right. Getting a ballpark would increase the value of his asset. Mm -hmm. And he'd have a new ballpark with the roof in Montreal in an incredible city. And it, it, it made perfect sense. So, and um, well, sorry, to, to, and to Terry's point, um, there's a couple of things that I look at, and it looks, as an outside observer, it looks like things uh, people would have done if they were trying to make it look like uh, they saved the team, or tr- we're trying to save the team. One of the things I look at is that uh, that meeting you referenced with Jerry Frappier, who um, I've met Jerry. He's He's uh, just the juxtaposition of Jerry and you on like a a very big guy, by the way, of a man, (laughs) very big man. And I'm a very small man. And and you walked out of that meeting uh, a few minutes in because it was clear you guys couldn't come to a consensus. Uh, But that kind of feels like me doing just enough homework to tell my parents I did my homework and then showing up with a C grade. But what's my end? Do you have any further conversations after that? Was there any plan, you know, contingency plan other than that? Like I know, I know that the historically the Blue Jays took a lot of the English market away in just terrible deals again put in place before your time. But it doesn't look to me as an outside observer that you made a legitimate effort to try and get a TV deal in place. So you have to remember what was going on economically back then, where the Canadian dollar was versus the U.S. dollar. Our revenue was in Canadian dollars and our expenses were in U.S. dollars. 
And there was a time where baseball was doing currency equalization for the Blue Jays and the Expos, by the way. And that disappeared because other teams did not want to support the Canadian teams in that way. So the exchange rate was not positive. So our view is that our TV deal had to be representative of the American TV deals in American dollars. And we did this in conjunction with MLB. We did this in conjunction with our limited partners. We gave them the financial budgets saying, here's the number we need for a TV deal. Here's the number of season ticket holders we need. Here's the average ticket price. Here's what happens if currency moves by a penny this way or a penny that way and the impact it would have. They saw every document all along the way. And as for Frappier, it was a fine meeting, but I don't want to waste his time and I don't want to waste my time. There was zero chance. Do you know to do a TV deal in baseball, it has to be approved by the commissioner's office? Mm-hmm. There was I'm, not, no, I'm not surprised Bud Selig wouldn't approve it because of what my perceptions are of the whole situation. But he wanted the team there because his best friend was Charles Bronfman. Oh, That's the irony know. is that people blame Bud Selig as wanting to move the Expos. It's his nightmare. He and Charles Bronfman spent years not talking because of what happened. They finally had a detente and made up. But years not talking when Charles was upset with Bud because Bud so badly wanted it to work. But as commissioner, he had no choice at some point but to make a decision that the team had to go to Washington. So that's the thing, too. So you're asking for four times the money and, you, you know, you're pushing. And it seems like there, there has to be some sort of negotiation when it comes to this because the negotiation isn't I undergo. You're, you're, you're a very good salesman. I mean, I think I'm a decent salesman. I'm not. A, I'm not the expert that you are. But when you get into when you get into a negotiation room, you pitch something. He pitches back, and you go back and forth, and you see where you can come. I mean, the best part of your going to negotiation history is the 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 bus, John Henry's bus. I think that's probably the best story I've ever heard in my life. And it's solid. I got. I, I, I hate yeah. to give David any credit for anything, but it's it's a great story. <laughs> so great I'm just story. so the negotiation is you come in at four times. This is what we need. But if if somebody if an ownership group really wanted to keep the team in place and really wanted to have the TV revenue, there would have been some sort of compromise, some sort of negotiation. Explain to me what I'm missing here. Do you realize that if what you're saying is true, then we would have accepted his deal? Because if we knew the team was going to move or we knew we didn't want the team to stay, we just would have signed the deal to get current day cash. That's what I'm assuming. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be any negotiation? There was no way we were going to lock the Expos into an undermarket TV deal for an extended period of time because that would hamstring the ability to operate it over the course of years. So you'd so, rather no money and cripple it than hamstring it with a little bit of money and maybe grow and show RDS that listen, this is what we're showing, this is what we're bringing you. We're bringing you twenty thousand views, whatever it is, whatever at that time would have been. Instead, we just say, okay, you know what? You don't want to give us what we want. We're out. And 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 then that that ended up hamstringing the entire deal and ended up crippling the team. It didn't. So as you know, negotiations aren't exactly like that. There's good guys. There's Obviously, bad guys. No. If Jerry tells you that there was no contact after, of course, that's not accurate. Oh, no, they, I never said that. I don't know Jerry personally. I can't tell you. Baseball that. got involved because having a team without a TV deal was a problem. And we had only a few games on TV at the time, and it was not acceptable to baseball or to the other owners. So there was a lot more that went into it than me walking out of a meeting, and all of a sudden, that's the end of the conversation. I that's assume sort of uh, somebody, somebody with your business acumen, that you're not just like, okay, that's the meeting, fuck it, we're out. I'm, I assumed like there was some sort of conversation afterwards by via phone story, or email or whatever. Right? It's a story. Of course, there's further conversations, but it became clear that there was no way that RDS would give the type of money that baseball or the Expos partnership would accept.
And you've never heard a Canadian partner, any of these guys come out and say, man, our general partner, what an asshole. How could he not have accepted that amazing TV deal that was offered? You've never heard any of them talk that way. And believe me, if they could, they would. What kind what? Okay, if I'm a fan of the Expos in 1999 and 2000, where can I watch the game? Um, other than at the stadium. So, by the way, at the stadium is a good one. But we had a few games on English TV, which were and we, I want to say it was CJC, but that's not what it was. It CJ, was um, not CJAC, CKAC. That's radio, isn't it? CKAC is the French radio, yeah. There's yeah, an English yeah. language TV station. We had an English language TV deal and an English language radio deal. CFCF? I can't. Back, I'm trying to remember what it was back then, but I think it's I know either CFCF, CTV, CBC. It would have been CFCF 12. It would be the local station, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we had a local deal. Maybe. And there were a smattering of games, but it was nothing. I mean, the, the revenue from it was nothing. We tried to get more people to come to the games because the games were on TV. But we had no way of knowing in 2000 that it was all going to be done as quickly as it ended up being done. And I'll go to the next point, which is the, the option on the land that people get upset about that we let lapse. You have to go back to 1999 and 2000. That land was not being developed. And one of the expenses of the expos was paying for an option on land that there was no money to build on. And none of the partners, Jeffrey nor his limited partners, when they looked at the budget, wanted to spend money on that option. Jeffrey didn't act like a rogue owner and do something without his partners. That is the biggest misconception about this entire situation is well, that the well, so partners were in the dark. I don't think that's the case, but where I think it's it's somewhat disingenuous is I don't see yourself and Jeffrey as being reactive people. So what I see is two people who are smart businessmen who saw an opportunity, who saw an, not necessarily the way it worked out. I, I there's no way you could have predicted flipping the Expos to the Major League Baseball, convincing John Henry to buy the Red Sox and <laughs> and buying the Marlins. Obviously, that's that's masterminds. If that's I don't what you even understand how that even. Yeah. I in in my whole time as a sportsman, I've never really seen anything like that. But I will say that it appears to me that you guys saw an opportunity in Montreal to become controlling owners. You guys saw an opportunity to get out and took that out, and then saw an opportunity. To kind of run the same, a similar gamut in Florida, you know, trying to get public money, getting that public money, building that team, and then selling that team with the stadium at a huge profit, not not blaming you for you know trying to make money. That's the goal in all of this. Eighteen years later, when the owner had just had it was was now seventy seven years old, and when he didn't see a path forward without Jose Fernandez. So, I mean, you, that is not, there is, I'll tell you this right now. If you think that Jeffrey in 2000 envisioned himself selling a team in 2017 called the Miami Marlins at a ballpark in Little Havana, then you're giving him way too much credit, me way too much credit. It's not, it wasn't even a thought back in 2000 that there'd be a Miami Marlins 17 years later. Well, I don't yeah. think that's the case. What I think is that, I don't think keeping the team here was ever a priority to you. Do, do you. Would you disagree with that? Of course I would disagree because he wanted to own a team. And he came in and the reason he signed Graham Lloyd is he wanted someone to pitch the eighth inning because the Expos in 99 had eighth inning problems. The reason he traded with the Yankees to get a Rabu is he wanted more starting pitching. Not saying they were great moves. Not saying they worked out. But we're when not. You, <laughs> when you look at what the rotation was, 
it needed help. When you looked at what the bullpen was, it needed help. And we were operating at a payroll that was just not able to be competitive. And and you have to remember the state of the team at that time, Guerrero, Vidro, great, great players. Excellent. But look 20 years later, the best player in baseball can't make the playoffs in Mike Trout. So the reality is that we knew what they were doing in Montreal wasn't working. So let's try something else and see if we can get more pitching and try to make the playoffs with Vidro and Guerrero as the top position players. But I, it just didn't happen. Much like in Florida, it didn't happen except for 03 when we won the World Series. So yeah, it's yeah. much harder than you think to build a team and to think that there were nefarious actions to make the team soccer, to not sign enough players or to sign the wrong players. Jeffrey wanted to win, whether it was Montreal or Florida. And I spoke to him every day for 18 years. And believe me, it was nail biting for me because every loss, every loss caused a 40 minute phone call. So, <laughs> so I, I, I don't actually know if this is true. Um, so I'm saying that on, on the floor. It's something that someone uh, mentioned to me uh, that you had mentioned somewhere. I couldn't find any record of it in my research, uh, but you mentioned somewhere that one of the conversations you had early with Bud Selig was about the potential of moving the team to New York City. And he said that that was a no-go. You're talking not not before Jeffrey bought the team. So what happened in after 2000, when the stadium deal really fell apart, when there was no way to get financing for it, there was a conversation about what to do because Olympic Stadium was not suitable for a franchise. And the question was, what do you do? We had the same conversation with Bud Selig with the Marlins. When the Marlins, there was no stadium there and we had no place to play, you have the same conversation. What do you do? Here's why you have to have that conversation. When you own a team, you are a franchisee. You literally own a franchise. One of the ways that you can lose your franchise is if Major League Baseball asks for at the beginning of every year, where are you playing your games? And if you don't have a place to play, you're in violation of the franchise agreement. And Major League Baseball can literally take your team away. Literally. So, of course, conversations are had about what to do, where to play, where to move. Just like Stu Sturmberg in Tampa has them, John Fisher in Oakland has them. We had them in Florida before a ballpark. They're having them in Arizona because they want a new ballpark. That is standard operating procedure in baseball. So, um, and so you mentioned the ballparks. Um, you also mentioned in, the, in that uh, interview with, uh, with Ariel Hawani, that you felt as though an outdoor stadium in Montreal is a non-starter. And I thought that was a mischaracterization of the weather. Yes, it's February right now. I can tell you the weather is absolute garbage. But <laughs> like for the bulk of the, the, the season, it's the weather here is not different than it is in New York City. The, the, the weather in October is not different than it is in New York City. Terry's pulled up the weather reports. You know, it's in, in the year that the team moved, the coldest it got was uh, six degrees Celsius, which is, I guess, is about 40, 40. And that's feet. October. That's playoff weather. That's like yeah. the, cold, it's the coldest you'll ever get. Yeah. So that that wasn't the issue. The issue was like Minnesota when they played in the uh, Metrodome, when they built a new ballpark, they chose to go without a roof. Now, mm -hmm. with when you ask them what their next ballpark is going to be, they're going to get the roof back again because they are hurting in April, May and October. And so the question is, what, what can we do? We designed a ballpark without a roof. We designed a ballpark with a roof. We priced a roof. We looked to see what it would cost, whether or not we could afford it. If we could have gotten a, a good TV deal and a stadium done without a roof, I think MLB may have approved it. But remember, there was history in Montreal long before we started with attendance issues. And the thought was you have to have a retractable roof facility because back then 
there were huge bumps in attendance that came from new stadiums. Doesn't exist anymore like that, but back then there were. So if the Mar if the Marlins, if the Expos had gotten that wasn't even a four-day slip. If the Expos had gotten a new retractable roof facility, it would have been one of the newer ones in all of baseball, and it would have been a huge boost to that team. But we into baseball, but we could not convince anyone to participate in that financing. Well, so, so that, that, go, sorry, ahead, please, go ahead. So, so I mean, saying the retractable roof is is a no go. Like we need that, or else fuck it, we're out. I mean, I that's that's the part that kind of that shakes me a bit because we we survived so many years and at a success. And the, from what I understand, the stadium Labad Park, regardless if we lost the if if you guys had lost the, the naming rights and and the and the lease on the land or whatever it was, uh, it was it wasn't going to be big. It was going to be a thirty thousand people something along those lines. So we. We existed at Jerry Park, which is a stone's throw away from where I am right now. We existed at Jerry Park for so many years and successfully. And then they decided to put us in the the Olympic Stadium just so they can start paying those stadium back because it's we're still paying for it now to this day. The, the city is still paying for that. Technically, freaking relic, we're that, done that, paying that, for it by but, now. It finished maybe like ten years ago, but still. No, not ten years ago. Anyway, regardless. But and now it holds monster truck rallies and a random soccer game once in a while. So it's pretty useless. And I think that if we continue to if we had some success and we continue the successes, we we would have ended up having the stadium. And I think that there was just this lack of maybe vision of 10 years down the line. I feel like we, it will, what happened was is we saw uh, two, three years where, OK, if we can get our stadium done in the next two, three years and increase the value of this team, then we're going to be out. And that's the, that's the way I see it. And that's where most public in Montreal see it. And, and I, it sucks because April is the coldest month of the year. Absolutely. Uh, coldest month in, in the baseball season. But the rest of the year is pretty is fine when it comes to baseball weather. I want to address both those points, but let's do some math first. What year did Olympic Stadium open? 1976. Right. So 86, 96, 06, 16. It's 45 years old. Marlins so Park. When we when we built Marlins Park, we signed a lease for the useful life of the ballpark. The lease is 38 years. Okay. I just think about all the ballparks. Atlanta built a new ballpark well within 45 years. Arizona's looking for a new one. The list goes on and on and on of ballparks. There are the occasional ones that last a while, like Wrigley Field, but huge mm -hmm. renovations, Fenway Park, huge renovations. Huge, it is huge. not outrageous that Olympic Stadium after 45 years is a relic. Now It was a relic after seven years. It, it was a relic in 1976, Terry. It wasn't built for <laughs> climate, unfortunately. Yeah. And our roof, by the way, the roof didn't even work in 99, 23 oh, years. Oh, I remember. And there was no money from the, the, the organization, and it's slipping my mind just because I'm old and it's a while ago, we were not, we didn't run the ballpark, right? The, the stadium yeah. was run by a company, by a, by a public sort of governmental entity in Montreal, and they did not budget to fix the roof. So the roof had to be in the closed position every day. And that was because they did not upkeep the stadium even back in, in 2000. And that was honestly that was a shame because Montreal summers are absolutely beautiful. And to like I remember, like, you know, I know David, you're gonna say, well, had more people gone to games, it would have saved the team. But you're talking to two guys who would go to like sort of 20, 30 games a summer. Yeah. And I remember it just you, you leave like this beautiful day. It's sunny, it's hot. You go into this cold concrete building that's empty and echoey and just it looks awful. It even looked bad on TV. And then you leave again, and it's sunny and nice and beautiful. And it's it's. Um, it looks it's, like a place you would hold a monster truck rally. Which, I went to by the way, it's awesome for here, by the way. For, awesome. two, for my two years, I went to every game. 
just, you know, did I miss one or two? I assume so. But yeah, I, it was it was horrible for me because I love good weather mm-hmm. and I yeah. love Montreal. I mean, I, I, I want to say again how much I really did love it. But uh, I, I, I want to address the second point you made about the object of a stadium is to increase the value of the team to flip the team. That's not the goal. What owners are trying to do and what what we were trying to do was be able to operate with a higher and higher payroll so we could make some mistakes in player signings, cover them up with new signings and being competitive and try to win in the National League East. It was not about selling the team or flipping the team. Jeffrey wanted to own a team his whole life. It lasted for 18 seasons and he sold. He called me up one day and said, I'm ready to sell. That's his business. But if there had been a stadium in Montreal, my guess is he would have sold Montreal this year as well, or last year, or three years ago, whenever he sold the Marlins. So I think that that the asset appreciation that you're discussing is certainly a benefit. But by the way, where were the Canadian partners if they knew? I agree that with it's that. Just about asset appreciation. Put in 18 million Canadian for the Bronfer well, family, for for Provigo, for Coutu. It's not even worth talking about. But they weren't willing to do it. And you have to ask yourself, which Bud Selig asked them, why not? Why do you not want to invest in the Expos? So it's a, it's um, a very good point. You you had mentioned um, sort of the treatment by the French media, and I won't dispute that at all because uh, the French media in this town can be absolutely brutal. Um, but the English media absolutely portrayed Jeffrey Loria and the Americans as the saviors of the Expos, and they were fed up with with the with the uh the local partners mm-hmm. uh because like again these people aren't heroes here like you know Bronfman you know he it, he's held to a different regard because he was around from the beginning but people like Brochu, Jacques uh Michaud especially is is really disliked for for his time with with uh with the Expos uh so definitely they don't escape with uh criticism they also don't they're not given the villainy just because Jeffrey was the controlling partner at the time of the sale. Um, and I do think that part of that, you know, in fairness to you, David, I think part of that was done by design because they knew the writing was on the wall as well. Just so you know how right you are about something, uh, the Canadian partners during meetings with them, and this is undeniable because why would I make it up? They always were happy that Jeffrey and I were taking the brunt of the media criticism. You have no idea how sensitive these men were. The reason they filed the arbitration against us is they wanted to try to save face. And they didn't care that they lost. They knew they were going to lose because they knew we had done nothing wrong. They knew we had followed the legal documents and the partnership documents exactly perfectly to the letter because I was in charge. So I knew everything we were doing was exactly okay and on point but it was all about saving face in Montreal and they didn't want to invest a penny. You know, the one owner who was willing to invest was a guy named Mark Rutenberg who didn't own a lot of, he he called Jeffrey a carpetbagger. If I remember (laughs) because that was, he was so despondent that the team was leaving. He loved being a minority partner, but he didn't want to invest more money. He didn't have the money to invest, couldn't do it, but he loved being an owner so much and he didn't want that to end. David, have Um, you, have you been to Montreal since the sale of the team? Of course. Have you, have you been to the area known as Griffintown now that where is where the stadium would have been? Of course. I ran the Montreal marathon. Was it last year? 
Uh, no, last year was Canceled COVID, last right? Year. Yeah. So then it must be September of 19. And by the way, the Montreal Marathon goes through yep. Olympic Stadium. So yep. I took pictures where I used to sit. I spent I, I had such a terrible time that day because I think I spent 40 minutes in Olympic Stadium walking around <laughs> and showing the people I was with running where I used to be and where the games were. I went to the pitcher's mound. So and we went out downtown because we're not looking for world world records. So we got absolutely snookered the night before the marathon and the night of the marathon. But I love I mean, I, and I've been to Montreal even more than that. I went back to a Canadians game uh, uh, after I left Montreal. I absolutely love it there. Uh, and the truth is, for the first few years when I came back, I'd get stopped at customs because I would be recognized and I'd get dog sniffing at me. But uh, time passed and that doesn't happen anymore. So um, uh, I, I, wanted to, go ahead, I, sorry, I actually have a follow up here. Did you do the full or the half? The full. Okay. Nice. And what was your time? I'm curious. Uh, we barely made it in the expected time. So I want to say six. If you're allowed six hours, we did 556. If you're allowed eight hours, we did 756, whatever it was. <laughs> but boy, did we have fun. So we I, have fun. I want to scale it back a bit. And you mentioned how, um, okay, so you guys were trying to get players and things like that. And we mentioned Graham Lloyd. And and to me, I look at that contract for that type of player at that moment, three years and $9 million. It screams <laughs> out, especially when he was asking half, he was asking for half of that. He just wanted a longer deal. It when was, a player asks for a longer deal, it's 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 kind of it's a sign saying, okay, I know that I suck right now, and I just want to guarantee the most money possible. <laughs> I'm laughing because that's every player. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So why give him that? And it's not, and we can't. I, I mean, I hate the fact that you're you're saying this. Like, oh, we we signed Graham Lloyd, like we're good. We no. we got Hideki Irabu, we're okay. Uh, Cliff no. Floyd, all right. Cliff Floyd was decent back then, but still. And we didn't have Cliff Floyd, but no, that that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that. Given the limited payroll that we had and it got approved through a partnership meeting, we approved a budget before Jeffrey would buy the team that would include an increase in payroll. He didn't want to buy the team unless there was going to be an increase in payroll. And the way to increase payroll, you try like to- you're shorting a stock. You tr- what? what? <laughs> it's like it's like you're, you're, you're increasing payroll with- not, You might as well have paid me the $9 million and I would have thrown pitches out there that year. And well, you thrown as many as Graham Lloyd did that season. I would have right? thrown as many as Graham Lloyd. That's what I'm trying I to would say. Like again, this is revisionist history, guys. Go back. Was Graham Lloyd a sought-after bullpen arm in free agency? And he was. Yeah. There's yeah. no and doubt. In the time where the setup man was a big deal. You so you have to put yourself in that place. It's not fair to look at the game now. Now I tell you, three million for a setup guy is amazing. Then it was a record, and that's what we had to do. It's not like players were jumping all over each other to play in Montreal. They loved it as a road city. Oh, did they ever! But the taxes are high. It's complicated when you have half your income in in uh, in Canada, for, and the tax credits are not exact one for one. And Graham Lloyd was coming from, I want to say, he was coming from the Yankees. And coming, he was coming from, from the Yankees, he was coming World off. Series. He was coming off to World Series, and the thing, the whole thing is, is that Jeffrey Lawyer loved ex-Yankees players. Like that's basically By what it way, was, right? That last, that wasn't a Montreal thing, guys. That lasted his entire career of ownership. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying that, and it was him. It's just that he wanted he 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 awed over ex-Yankee players because they were because he's a Yankees fan, and and that's why. So we overpaying for guys that he liked. I like peas. I'm not paying him anything. You know what I mean? Like it's just. Yeah, it is, by the know, way, I like you, David, but you can. I'm not paying you anything. You don't have no. And by the way, I'm appearing courtesy of 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 nobody. I'm happy to be doing this, and we're and, happy to have you. And it's my pleasure. But keep in mind that Graham Lloyd was not a schlepper 
in 2000. This was a great signing. Do we overpay him? You're damn right we did. We overpaid him by about $1 million a year and one extra year. I ask you, when you look at contracts today, are players overpaid now by a year and a million? You're damn right they are. By the way, we by did it. A hundred million. What? By a year and a hundred million, they're overpaid by today. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, our view of Graham Lloyd is when he asked for three a year, we deferred a few of the million and we said, let's do it. Yeah. And okay. and he agreed to sign and it was great. There was great excitement. And yes, we gave up too much for a Rabu. Yes, we did. No doubt about it. But let me tell you, we needed him in that rotation. Did we think he'd be hurt and suck and be the biggest head case of all time? May he rest in peace. Um, but it's it, it obviously that did not work, but not for lack of trying. Um. So I have a couple of questions, David, uh, just because we've taken quite a bit of your time. And um, I just want to get to these before we let you go. Um, well, I mean, just you mentioned it's not even Expos related, but it's on my list just because it happened sort of as we were preparing for this interview. Um, Hideki Rabu famously had issues adapting in North America. And we see Kevin Mather making the uh, comments he made in Seattle. Um about you know the idea of paying a translator seventy five thousand dollars, which is basic. I can't even believe they only make that much money in the first place. But um, complaining after you know making millions of dollars, complaining that he's paying a, a, a translator seventy five thousand dollars and so on, uh, and now he's been let go. Um, you're of the same frame of mind as I am that he didn't resign, that he was asked to resign. But how does that work in terms of contracts like is he still paid like is it done in a way where it's like okay well you screwed up and we can't keep you but well it's guaranteed money right so baseball yeah, terminate some but you can terminate an employee for cause all the contracts but, be, but isn't like if that's not cause i don't know what is yeah exactly actually uh i could argue the other side very convincingly he gave oh, an interview true. where he gave his opinion about not wanting to pay translators not wanting to bring up players upset that certain players didn't speak english or spoke english too well or not well enough there are some contracts where cause is criminal activity, causes being caught doing something with financial impropriety, causes doing something that was not what Kevin Mather did. But then there's a provision that we like to put in. It's the catch all for management. Anything that makes our organization put into a bad light is cause. And what that really means is we're going to fight and we're going to settle because we want to fire you. So that's what happened in Seattle. They sat him down and said, listen, you can't be the president after today. We know this. Here's what you wrote on your contract. Here's the little piece of the team that you own. Let's come to a negotiated settlement right now. We're happy to say that you're resigning. We don't care. We just need you gone right now. And that's what they did. They negotiated his departure. That's why it took into the day, the second day. My view for the Mariners, they should have announced he was fired that night. But it's like John Stanton, the owner, was waiting to see how bad the PR was going to get and whether or not Rob Manford was going to be as angry as he was. And boy, was he angry. So I have one question before we before Pease asks uh, the last one and we'll, and we'll, and we'll send, you, uh, send you away and appreciate your time. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm a conspiracy theorist like all the time. Like I'm always, tinfoil hat, it's always on. And I have a huge conspiracy theory when it comes to the Toronto Blue Jays and their ownership and what they did in order to get Montreal outside of, like to get rid of Montreal. And I want to know, is there anything you can tell me that could confirm my conspiracy theories? Because anything I find online doesn't really tell me anything of proof. 
I'm totally sorry to tell you the Blue Jays, while they benefited from the Expos leaving, no doubt, while they would certainly be happy, like we'd be happy if the Tampa Bay Rays left Florida of course, and, and the Marlins would be the only team, but they did not take one action that made it more difficult for the Expos to stay in Montreal. They did not tell all the TV networks, don't do a deal with Montreal. They didn't tell fans to go to games or not go to games. None of that. Just like we didn't do anything to, you know. Of course. Tampa's effort. So no, I, I, I'd like I, to say it's true because then I could blame someone else, right? <laughs> Just point the finger at them. At them. We'd love to hate Toronto, so yeah. yeah. Unless Terry David is in on the conspiracy, ah, in which case blink go. twice to let us there know. There you go, David. Oh, okay. Works for the Blue Jays. So Dave, uh, again, so we're gonna let you go, but I just want to. I have a couple of things we can go through them quickly. Okay. Uh, one is uh, Stephen Bronfman has talked about uh, getting a stadium built in Griffintown which is the question I was trying to set up, but because we're not in studio, Terry doesn't see my visual cues. No, um, so um, given, given that, um, do, you, do you think that that's going to get done or do you think that's a plan in the works and do you think the Expos will be back in Montreal within the next decade? Well, the next decade, that's a long time. I think that Montreal is being used as a stalking horse right now. They're being used to keep the other U.S. cities in play for expansion or relocation because they got to figure out Tampa. I think the multi-city solution that Tampa is trying to do with Stephen Bronfman does not work for players. The union is never going to agree to it. They can't get one stadium built, and now they're trying to build two. I understand the theory, but in practice, it just doesn't work. In terms of what happens in the next decade, never say never. Uh, just never say never. But you're going to need more in Montreal than than Stephen Bronfman going around and, and being Stu Sternberg's guest at the World Series. You're going to need, and this is what baseball has been very clear to Stephen Bronfman, and I know this, you need a fully funded stadium deal and you need your broadcast deal. You need it in hand, in hand, and then how you're going to operate your team. Then we'll talk about putting a team in Montreal. Um, do you I have any so. regrets about your time here? It's funny. You mean personally or professionally? Both. Both. Why not? <laughs> so personally, I spent so much time at Olympic Stadium that I didn't spend enough time enjoying what a great city Montreal is from a cultural standpoint. Yeah, because St. Leonard is garbage. What? Oshelaga, whatever. That area is awful. So you're a hater. So that is a personal regret. A professional regret is is that it is think about what's happening right now. It's 21 years later. And I am only 53 years old, turning 53 on Friday. I don't know when you're releasing this, but on February 26th. So tomorrow. Yeah, by tomorrow morning, it'll be out. So spoiler alert, I guess two <laughs> days from now, I turn 53. And 21 years after I was in Montreal, it's still being talked about. And thinking about that as, my, as part of a legacy saddens me because there was nothing wrong with what I was trying to do. I was young. I was inexperienced. I made tons of mistakes. But the overall issues in Montreal were such that I don't think the most seasoned executive put in by Bud himself or Charles Bronfman himself could have done anything better at the end of the day. So, of course, I regret it not working. I love the city of Montreal. I love going back there. But it just didn't happen. I thought you would have said your biggest regret would have been dying your hair blonde. Like those, uh, I, streak, those I, streaks I, that I saw back in the day. Um, I don't know how you would have seen that because that was in 1985 that I did that. And I remember. I, 
Because I it found was a- after I dyed it red in Europe in 1984. In 1985, I put <laughs> frosting tips all over my hair, and uh, that was really something. What was the I name have- of your boy band? <laughs> exactly right. It was I, have a, I have a picture, though. I found it online. Get and it was girls ever band. I have a picture I found online. It was you and Jeffrey kind of like high-fiving, and you have blonde tips on. Could I be wrong? I don't yeah. have it on me now. I, when I was just like doing the research, I saw it. Post it on Twitter like, later, uh, Terry. Post yeah, I'll post it on Twitter. I don't think I would have added blonde tips as a EVP of the Expos. That's what I'm thinking. But listen, I, God knows. I, I, I have no recollection of it. And one of my biggest failings is early onset, no memory. I literally no. can't remember. So if you have a picture of it, I'm not going to oh deny it. Could it be Photoshop? Maybe. I don't recall that. It could have been the light. It could have been the sun. Who knows what? <laughs> I'll add the, you a few the hardest hitting question, uh, David, it's my last one. Uh, you know, when you guys left town, uh, you guys famously took uh, all the employees you could, uh, all the scouting reports. The part that confuses me the most is you took all the computers. Oh, Why God. did you take a whole bunch of like those bubble right. items? With you? Can I explain to you what's happening, please? Once sure. and for all, it was an asset purchase. Okay. Here's what that means. That means there's a list that you get and it's this thick, it's five inches thick. And what you have to do is write down every single asset owned by a partnership. The Montreal Expos partnership, Montreal Expos LP is what it was called, owned five inches worth of assets, computers, ball machines, any asset you can think of. When the Montreal Expos partnership moved to Miami, to become the Miami or the Florida Marlins limited partnership. There wasn't any sort of asset exchange. Literally that partnership took all of its assets and landed in a different spot to do business. It's the equivalent of you moving apartments and saying, wow, I'm totally critical of you for bringing your couch. I can't believe you brought your TV. What kind of asshole brings his TV when he goes from one apartment to the next? It, it just, it just seemed weird. Like as I was reading yeah. it, that it is me, and that is my hair. That is pretty unbelievable. I, <laughs> I can't believe that I, whatever, I was going through something. That's for sure. But okay. we it was, got, the, it was the 90s, the late 90s. It was a weird time, a weird time for everybody. Let me be clear. We wanted to show loyalty to our baseball employees. We wanted to bring them with us because John Henry was bringing all the Marlins baseball employees with him to Boston. So, so you said, was, fuck, you will take your bus. Well, that's a different story, but it was completely (laughs) planned that John Henry took everyone from Florida and we took everyone from Montreal. That makes sense. Um, David, thank you so much for your time. Um, It's honestly the the fact that we have you in the show is a little strange just because of of all the group of people we have working with us at Hot Sauce Sports. The one who's least likely to trash talk anybody is me. And you're the only one I've ever done it to. Literally, I never go after athletes. I never want coaches fired. I just, you know, again, the Expos just speak to a a, um, a very nostalgic time in my life. And I wanted to hate you, that's for sure. I'm yeah. happy to be accessible. I'm happy you gave me the opportunity because it's okay to be angry with me. I get it. <laughs> I just wanted an opportunity to say hello and tell you that maybe when you get to know me, you'll realize that if you were in my shoes, the same outcome may have taken place, maybe not. But I'm not the... The, the person who I play on TV, that's a character. Like being the president of the Marlins, being the executive vice president of the Expos. This, on nothing personal, my show now, that's me. That's who I am. When I am 
forced to run a team and operate, you know, in a very stand up way and be very business oriented and have goals that need to be done for people I work for. I work for myself now. I do a show now. I can say whatever the fuck I want whenever I want to. And I love it. And I'm thankful that you gave me the opportunity to at least say hello. And if you want to mm-hmm. trash talk me still, please do. But just yeah, know I still have every 15 days. Don't worry. No, um, no, well, just we'll just get, I'll just send you this picture of you and your blonde uh, tips like once a week. Probably I'll just send it to you on Twitter. Um, so David's show, as he mentioned, is nothing personal. Um, I actually listened to a couple episodes in preparation uh, for this show. My wife is tired of hearing your voice, David, because <laughs> it's been on constantly. I'm uh, I'm a chronic over preparer. So uh she's she was annoyed by you uh i'm always kind of annoyed by you but it's it is it has been a pleasure to meet you it's been a pleasure to ask you these questions directly because these questions like terry these questions have been on my mind for 20 plus years yeah uh, so definitely thank you for coming on uh you have your regular hits of course on the Lebertard show as well um so definitely give david a follow he's an interesting guy uh check out the podcast it sounds a bit like an opening statement or closing statement because you're by yourself you're sort of laying out the facts, uh, and it kind of shows your training as a lawyer. I just thought it was an interesting uh, approach to podcasting, not one I've particularly heard elsewhere. So kudos to you to come for coming up with uh, a great idea and something that really speaks to your skill set. And, uh, yeah, I definitely, definitely would recommend people to, to check it out. And thank you once again for your time, David. I appreciate you guys. Have a safe, great day. You, you too. too. I, hate that I, I hate that I like you now, David. That's all i got to say. Oh, I still won't. Just refuse. <laughs> no what, refusal. It's a good thing my ego is not dependent on you guys liking me. Ah, there you go. So you're not hey, have a great day. And wear that hat with health, please. I will. Absolutely. This show feels like a redemption arc for a villain in some ways. You know, like been hated throughout the city and finding finding a way to kind of get over that hump and be like common by the ground community. Yeah, common ground. Common ground. Yeah. Common we didn't even talk about Survivor, which is great. By the way, commonality of difference is a concept I talk about. It's okay for people to be different. It's okay for you and I to have a different view if you're more emotional or I'm more emotional or I've got a different sort of vantage point. But the commonality of difference can be overcome when people just talk. And in our country right now, not yours, in our country, no one is talking to each other. They're talking over each other. And it's a problem. And I hope that that you and I going forward can always talk to each other instead of over each other. Absolutely. I appreciate you taking the time. Honestly, I was so excited to have you on. I told everybody and uh, a lot of the like uh, uncles and, you know, older guys are like, oh, I can't wait. They're going to listen to it and stuff. So I'm, I'm happy that you came on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Send me a link. I'll definitely retweet it. This has been great. And uh, I got to go. Bye. Bye David. Great. Thanks a lot, Dave.